welcome to Fruit Loops episode 11. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't know or hear much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that media and entertainment commonly leave out because ding, ding, the news is racist. <laughs> <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Nope. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. That's right. Some of the things that we discuss on this podcast may be triggering and or disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. And sometimes we use explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Enter mm -hmm. at your own risk. So how are you, Beth? I'm doing much better today than I was yesterday because I was sick yesterday. And uh, yeah, so I feel better. Good. How are you doing? Um, great. Um, I happen to love Mar like the Marvel movie comic universe mcu uh-huh it's colloquially known <laughs> and um <laughs> i i uh, finally saw avengers infinity war with my kids and when i when i get really excited and i'm watching a movie i can't sit down i have to like uh -huh. pace <laughs> and i was like pacing and like jumping i it was when i tell you that this it was so good i mean it if was you're really into good. like yeah like all i had it had everybody. Black Panther was there. Thor was there. Uh, Eagle Eye was there. Uh, all of them. Spider Man. Spider Man them, yeah. was so ugh, the kid who the kid who they have cast as Spider Man is fucking uh, awesome. He's the best Spider Man yet. And Mark Ruffalo plays the Hulk, and he is right. also the best the best guy to have, yeah. to have played the Hulk so far. So yeah, great. he's really good. I'm, yes, he is good. I'm going to so, have to um, check that out. You should just get it on demand. I, I'm like, couch. I'm behind on my Avengers. I still have to watch the second one. I watched the first one, but I didn't watch the second one. And this is a third one, right? Yeah, this is, I think, the third one. And yeah. um, I don't know if you need to watch the second one to see. I this know, one. but I'd still you like to. You should watch, however, before you watch this one. Um, Thor Ragna Ragnarok. Okay, Ragnarok, I haven't. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's like it's like what takes place like immediately after that. So, um, okay. So yeah, I, that's another one I need to watch. See, I watch all the first ones. Like I've mm -hmm. seen Thor, and I've seen yeah, the Avengers. I watch all the first ones, and then I just kind of get lost after that. I don't know what oh. what happens, but. Well, they, yeah. Next time it's on TV, just just sit down. I'll just, just plop, sit down and watch it and watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mind all the other stuff, yeah. <laughs> um. So, um. Well, good. So this next part of our show is our shout out time, and we like to shout out any content, um, by people of color, um, or about people of color, or any true crime goodies. 
So, so yeah, I wanted to recommend uh, the Criminology Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4. Okay, so it's about Ted Bundy. I don't know if you've listened to Criminology before. Um, I have, and I, I don't... Uh, go ahead. I the, the Ted Bundy ones are in my feed, in my queue. Yeah, yeah. So they do... Every season is a different uh, crime arc. Uh, like, the, I think the first one was the Zodiac... The second one for sure was the uh, Golden State Killer. That's right. And then this one is uh, Ted Bundy. And there's only four episodes, so it's pretty short comparatively. Like the um, mm-hmm. Golden State Killer was really long. Um, but yeah. And so it's it's pretty easy breezy listen. Uh, but episode mm-hmm. four, um, in the latter half of the episode, they talk to a neuroscientist about brains serial killer brains and ted bundy and i thought it was fascinating Fascinating. yeah both about bundy and serial killers in general so yeah i wanted to uh recommend that because there's a lot of good information in there i thought Mm, i will be checking that out thanks beth sure thing um all right extra extra read all about it any true crime (laughs) news (laughs) um Well, uh, I guess I'll start. Molly Tibbetts' body was found, which is good. Closure for her family, right? Um, Right. It looks like she was uh, murdered by stabbings. Uh, Her body had evidence of sharp force injuries. An immigrant led the police to her body. His name is Cristian Baena Rivera, a 24-year-old Mexican man who illegally came to the United States was charged with her murder on Wednesday after he confessed to following her on her run. Um, in an arrest affidavit, Rivera said he remembered getting mad at her. Uh, what happened afterward uh, was blocked from his memory. When he came to, he realized he had put a bleeding Tibbets in his trunk, and then he carried her to a cornfield and left her there. That's what the affidavit states. After the guy killed her, he continued to show up for work every day for the next Mm. almost 30 days as if nothing happened. Um, The loss of this young woman. Yeah, it's it's wild. The loss of this young woman is, uh, yeah, is being overshadowed by um, the race, color and immigration status of the killer. And even Molly's family was like, um, the immigration status doesn't matter. Molly is still gone. Um, and, uh, nine, that's how I referred to, um, 45 because you add the four and the five and then, um, he's nine. I is using incendiary language like illegal alien. Um, first of all, people cannot be illegal. They are undocumented. (laughs) And also I think this guy, his attorney said he was here legally. So I don't know, um, the, all the news is saying that he wasn't legal or he, he was I guess we'll find out. Yeah. His attorney says he was. Yeah. So we, we shall see on that. Um, but uh, he is responsible for the terrible murder of Molly Tibbetts. Um, allegedly, allegedly, since, you know, innocent till proven guilty, I guess. And uh, condolences to her family and loved ones. Yeah, it really, really upsets me to see people use his uh, immigration status as a tool to justify this administration's draconian practices at the border, like family separation. Right. Uh, in my opinion, it boils down to racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if this guy's guilty, he did a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. 
But when a white guy kills someone, mm-hmm. say uh, Christopher Watts, mm-hmm. who's admitted to killing his pregnant wife and two children, babies, right? we don't just automatically jump to the conclusion that all white men need to be banished from the country. Well, Why is that? Because <laughs> we know not all white men are the same. Mm. <laughs> Most of them don't kill their families. What? What's that, we what? understand that. <laughs> I know. (laughs) But a Mexican guy who may have been in the country illegally commits a horrible crime and suddenly all Mexicans are terrible and it's okay to treat Mexicans like human garbage at the border. Mm. It's not okay. The administration is using Mexicans as a scapegoat to rile up their base. And, uh, you know, I... I, I I keep thinking about the Holocaust, you know, uh, I know um, when people, uh, it gets like, uh, I don't know, heated, mm-hmm. uh, people always bring up uh, the Holocaust and Nazis and stuff, but there really is a parallel. Um, oh, yeah. The Nazis riled up their base by uh, talking about Jews, mm-hmm. like they were terrible people. Yeah. It, and you're in a, uh, this you're in a administration. Because of those people over there. It's because of those people. Those people are causing your problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, it's working. Yeah. And it's really sad and distressing to me to see how racist our country can be. Yeah. Uh, The reality is that unauthorized immigrants, immigrants commit fewer crimes than native born residents. And I'll link that in the footnotes. Thank you. Uh, do we need a, you're welcome. <laughs> do, you, do we need a secure border? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but guess what? We already have a pretty secure border. Mm-hmm. I know that's shocking. Yeah. Guess Given what? There's the already a on the right. <laughs> <laughs> According to a 2017 Homeland Security report, which I will also link in the footnotes, Successful border crossings have been going down dramatically for over a decade. Homeland Security's conclusion is that it's more difficult to cross the border now than ever before. Mm. Finally, I'm appalled that Molly Tibbetts' murder is being overshadowed by this racist debate about illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. A woman was murdered. People are not talking about Molly. They're not even really talking about her alleged murderer, Christian Bahena Rivera. Mm-hmm. They're talking about immigration, right. including me now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to stop right oh, here. We're, we're setting the record <laughs> And if straight. it turns out, <laughs> yes, and if it turns out this guy is guilty, like you said, innocent until proven guilty. If it turns out he's guilty, I hope maybe we can do an episode about it. Yeah. Once all the facts are out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we will get to the bottom of this. Justice will be served properly and correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we can talk about it on this show. Yep. So. Who are we talking about today? Beth? Today we're talking about Timothy Wilson Spencer, also known as the Southside Strangler. This case is notable as the first case in the U.S. where DNA was used to convict a serial killer. DNA had been used in a previous killer in the U.K. 
when a man by the name of Colin Pitchfork was convicted of murdering two teenagers. That case is documented in a book called The Blooding by Joseph Wamba. And also there was a recent ITV TV series called Code of a Killer, uh, which is about that case. But it's a bunch of white people, so we will not. Be we won't be covering that. that case. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is this dude's name really Pitchfork? Yes, okay. Colin Pitchfork. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Timothy yep. Wilson Spencer was convicted of raping and strangling four women over 11 weeks in 1987. Very busy. There was very little circumstantial evidence, and Spencer did not confess. Then DNA tests linked semen from the crime scenes with Spencer's blood. Most of Spencer's victims were killed while he was living at a Richmond halfway house after being released from a state prison where he had served three years of a 10-year sentence for burglary. The slangs took place on weekends when Mr. Spencer was signed out of the halfway house. Oh, and now for the right. stats. Let's get into some stats. So, All right. <laughs> Mr. Spencer had five murder victims, nine rape victims. His crimes spanned from 1984, and then he took a break. He must have been in prison then. No? Yeah, he was in prison. And then uh, yeah, 19... that was when he was yeah. in prison. 1987 to uh, 1988, the crimes occurred in Arlington and Richmond, Virginia, and his AKAs are the Southside Strangler, the Southside Slayer, and the Southside Rapist. Um, and uh, I wanted to point out that his method for um, selecting his victims including, included stalking, um, lying in waiting, uh, uh, lying in wait, I guess, and um, strangling. And I bring that up because. Um, he raped a bunch of people before he started killing people. And one of, there was a, a woman who her home was broken into and she found um, the, you know, the string for your blinds. They were cut. The Venetian blinds. Yeah. And neatly placed on her bed yeah. as if he was like waiting for her, but she took too long. So he left and he, nothing ever ended up happening to her other than her own being broken into. Yeah. Bed. That's freaky. So yeah, he would just uh. sit there and wait. Okay. Uh, scary. Yeah. Very scary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, Timothy Wilson Spencer was born on March 17th, 1962 in Arlington, Virginia. He grew up in the lower-income neighborhood of Green Valley in Arlington, Virginia. His parents had some college and were employed, but at some point they divorced. So he was raised by a single mother, and his youngest brother, Travis, said that they had a very structured family and that their mother was the best mother in the world. Travis also said that Timothy was a loving brother and he has fond memories of his brother teaching him to ride a bike. Timothy was described as uniquely handsome mm -hmm. with hazel, hazel eyes, but he was quiet. He was intelligent, but was a poor student, and he didn't do well in school. He started getting into trouble around the age of nine, when he often stole things. At 12 years old, he would urinate and defecate, in the school's public areas, and had a history with arson. 
At some point, he even set his mother's car on fire. What the fuck? I know. The the urinating and defecating. Uh, that, yeah, somebody should have been like, uh, this kid needs a counselor. <laughs> we can add him to the prayer list. ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. All right. So um, Arlington and Richmond, Virginia in the mid 1980s um, is where this all took place. Arlington is considered a bedroom community and is very close to Washington, D.C. Um, actually, um, so I listen to a lot of black people podcasts <laughs> and um, uh-huh. a lot of them are based in what they call the DMV. And I'm like, what is the DMV? It stands for, uh, oh boy, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. So this happened in oh, okay. DMV. Um, it's like a tri-state area. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just a they group it all this all this all these three different states in one little one one place. So DMV for yeah, sure. Yeah, DMV. I th- I'm thinking of uh, the motor vehicles. I, that's what I was thinking. So I'm like <laughs> listening to these podcasts. Like, what the heck? We're on the West Coast, so I don't, I have no idea what they're talking about. So I had to go to the source. So I have several cousins who are on the, um, I have hundreds of cousins, if you haven't figured out. So they're in the DMV? Some of them are in the DMV. They they explained to me. So thank you, cousins, for doing that. So uh, (laughs) Richmond was the formal capital of the Confederacy. Oh, my favorite. And it has a long history of deep racial divisions. (laughs) Confederate flags were everywhere. As late as 1968, the newspaper uh, Real Estate still divided real estate ads into black and white homes. Shout out to redlining. Um, Schools didn't (laughs) desegregate until the 1960s, early 70s. Brown B. Board of Education was in the 50s, you guys. So they were a little late. Yeah, it took them a little while. while. The mid-80s saw a uh, burgeoning crack epidemic. Uh, the murder rate skyrocketed and Richmond was starting to be referred to as the murder capital of the South. Hi, <gasps> those meal. <laughs> I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, Skinwalkers, Glitches in the Matrix, Cult Leaders, Missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. 
Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Hey. Uh, yeah. Here we go. Let's do it. You ready? Uh, did you hear the splash? <laughs> I just dove in. <laughs> just dove into just the dove timeline. Into the <laughs> uh, between June 1983 and January 1984, nine women in Arlington had been attacked by an African-American man in his 20s who carried a knife and wore a makeshift mask. The police call this man the masked rapist. <laughs> They're oh, very creative. They creative with their names. <laughs> Go law enforcement. Hey. Hey. Good job, rapist. guys. <laughs> Ten points for creativity. <laughs> <laughs> he told the women he raped that he would kill them or their family if they told anyone what happened. He even stuffed one woman into the trunk of her car and then set the car on fire. She was able to escape by kicking the trunk mm. open. That's that pretty is fucked up. Super fucked up. Um, <laughs> I I wish. Okay, so we know he didn't confess, and he said very little to uh, like to explain himself. But I wish he would. Have. Right, bro. What's wrong with I you? Know. <laughs> so January twenty fifth, nineteen eighty four, a thirty two year old lawyer named Carolyn Ham was found in, in her home dead. She had been raped and strangled, and she was found with her hands behind her back tied up. The perpetrator entered her home through a basement window, and David Vasquez, a Latinx and mentally handicapped McDonald's uh, janitor, was arrested and confessed to the murder. Um, He was convicted and sentenced to to 35 years. Now, if you read the transcript of them interrogating him, they were feeding him like all the info so it was really fucked up what the police did yeah him. um they were like yeah he was like okay i guess i stabbed her and then they were like no you didn't stab They're like her no, no 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 you, you didn't stab her, her. <laughs> and he was like all right fine oh yeah I I strangled her. <laughs> so, I, i'm laughing but it's not funny it's not it's it's, it's really it's not awful. funny so the I don't know why I, I don't know why this is allowed, but the police can lie to you when they're trying to get information from you and it just it it just yeah. makes me ugh. They what they yeah, what I remember from that Southern Nightmare podcast, uh he said that they lied to him and they told him that they had his fingerprints. Mm-hmm. They did not have his fingerprints, yeah. but since he you know, he he only had an IQ of seventy. Yeah. And he had a mental, uh, you know, capacity of like a 10 year old. I, re- I heard that. Too. And yeah. so, yeah, it was wrong. So was he wrong thinks, oh, well, well, they have my fingerprints. So uh, he, he has no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. He's mentally 10 years old, you know? Yeah. And I wonder, I know, I know pretty sad. we can all say I need, I need a lawyer, but uh, are police obligated to, uh, offer that to somebody with a mental um, like deficit. I would, I would, I don't think so, but I, I think they should. All right. So a- where, as soon as they, where are legislators? I think as soon as they realize, yeah, 
I think that as soon as they realize this this person has a mental handicap, uh, that they should be treated differently. I think so too. You know, I think so. But well, if I'm like children are treated well, differently. Beth, only some children are treated differently. Hence <laughs> <laughs> uh, the need for this podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true. True. So what's next? Uh, okay. All right. So on Dinwiddie Street, only two blocks from Ham's house, someone had broken into a residence through a downstairs window and left some cords cut from a Venetian blind on a woman's bed. But the intruder left before the woman returned home. Mm. Around the same time, a woman who lived nearby was assaulted by the masked rapist who had broken in through a window. The similarities in the masked rapist assaults were striking starting with the fourth victim all of the women had been tied up with rope or cords from venetian blinds the fifth victim had been locked in the trunk of a car that was subsequently set on fire but she was able to kick her way out and escape the last victim who lived just six blocks away from carolyn ham had been attacked on january 25th Six hours after Ham's body was Shout out discovered. To that woman who got away. On yeah. uh, January 29th, 1984, four days after Carolyn Ham's body was found, Timothy Wilson Spencer was arrested for a burglary in Alexandria. After serving his time, so uh, he was released to a halfway house on Richmond's south side on September 4th, 1987. At the halfway house, he was seen as a loner. He did not engage with other parolees there. The only person he really talked to was a female member of the staff, and he worked on her car for her, and she allowed him to use it. He often took it to go to the Cloverleaf Mall. By the way, I think I um, heard in the uh, documentary, or not documentary, the 10-episode the uh, podcast about this particular murderer, uh-huh. that he had a girlfriend? at the time yeah yeah i heard that too but i i didn't mention anything about it in here because i didn't really well, yeah know we didn't, else we didn't about know that, enough so. so probably not best to dive into it but i, I just yeah. i just wanted to shout out that i heard that so yeah so on september 18th or 19th between 9 p.m and 9 a.m somewhere in there Nine, in 1987, uh, Debbie Dudley Davis was murdered. Debbie Davis was described by f- her friends as a sweet woman who didn't have an enemy in the world. She was a 35-year-old divorced white woman who worked at Style Magazine as an accounts manager. Debbie Davis was thought of at the office as sort of a house mother, a kind woman known for bringing in cookies and decorating for the holidays. She also worked part-time a few nights a week at a bookstore as a sales clerk. Uh, The bookstore was at the Cloverleaf Mall. Mm -hmm. She loved popular culture and was even an extra in a movie. Uh, So on the night that she was murdered, uh, Spencer cut the screen of her window and climbed in using a rocking chair uh, to stand on. And once he got into her house, uh, he waited for her to come home. Uh, He made a homemade tourniquet. 
uh, once she came home and uh, he attacked her, mm-hmm. he uh, he raped her and then he choked her using a sock and a vacuum cleaner extension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he would revive mm-hmm. her. He strangled and tortured her to death. Uh, the victim's body was found on her bed by the officers of Richmond Bureau so of Police. this is one sick fucker. <laughs> and, um... Yeah, I kind of hate this. Yeah, um, I- I'm, I'm grateful that we found the details about how he, he did it, but it's just so, um, sinister. So I, at first... Upsetting. Yeah, yeah. when I, um, so I'm picturing he took the sock and then used, like, the... The, you know those attachments for vacuum cleaners that nobody ever knows what to do with. yeah that's what and it he is just, yeah like, tur- he just was turning it to- turning it to choke her choke yeah her. oh goodness gracious and then i also need to mention that um uh richard foster the guy who d- um is responsible for this um the, po- southern, the, po- nightmare. the southern nightmare podcast yes he uh worked at this magazine also um after obviously after Ms. Davis passed away, but, um, no, style yeah, magazine, yeah, style magazine. So that's how he, he was able to, um, interview, um, people who knew her and, and worked with her there. So, um, the medical examiner determined that the ligature had been twisted two or three times and the cause of death was ligature strangulation. The pressure exerted was so great that in addition to cutting into Miss Davis's neck muscles, Jesus larynx and voice box, it had caused blood congestion in her head and a hemorrhage in one of her eyes. In addition, her nose and mouth were bruised. Miss Davis's hands were bound by the use of shoestrings, which were attached to the vacuum cleaner extension. Semen stains were found on the victim's bedclothes. The presence of spermatosa, ooh, fancy word, uh, also was found <laughs> when rectal and vaginal swabs of the victim were taken. In addition, when the victim's pubic hair was combed, two hairs were recovered that did not belong to the victim. The two hairs later were determined through forensic analysis to be consistent with Spencer's underarm hair. And uh, further forensic analysis was completed on the semen stains on the victim's bedclothes. I also uh, heard, and I don't remember where, but um, the hair evidence, which they used to rely on mm-hmm. uh, pretty heavily, mm-hmm. um, is not as uh, reliable as they used to think it was. So, like, hair can be consistent with a person, mm-hmm. but it can't really identify that a makes person. sense. That makes sense. And um, yeah. I... Uh... I just I think that it's cool that we're evolving um, in terms of how we um, how we do how we uh, in- investigate these crimes. The the science evolves. The science yeah. is evolving, and um, I think that uh, it's also um, cool how the I think if you parallel how science is evolving with how we are evolving as a people, and now we um, now we have LGBTQ plus, and now we um, y- you know society is evolving is evolving as well as the science um, that's that's supporting all the things that we do. Um, so I think that that is a cool little parallel that I had to say something. Yeah, so anyway. it is pretty cool. So on October 2nd, 1987, 
or on the early morning of October 3rd, 1987, Dr. Susan Hellams was murdered. Dr. Hellams was a neurosurgery resident. She was described as having the eye of an eagle, the heart of a lion, and the hands of a woman. She was a ferocious reader. The police were called by her husband after he returned home and discovered her partially clothed body on the floor of the couple's bedroom closet. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled. Uh, The perpetrator had entered her house by cutting the second story window screen. Second story. He climbed? Second story. Yeah. Um, I can't remember where it was. I saw it or read it but he like stood on a fence and like pulled himself up through the window so um they surmised that he was athletic yeah uh because of that (laughs) (laughs) so um they think that he broke into her home and then hid in her closet and waited for her to come home they thought that because uh she had taken off a watch and her earrings and place them where she normally put them. So she must have been surprised by her killer. Um, And then she was strangled using two belts. There was a red belt around her neck and a black belt connected to it. So the killer uh, could pull it uh, from a distance to torture her, kind of like a a dog leash. Mm. Uh, The killer also left a tub of Vaseline at the crime scene. Uh, but no fingerprints or hairs. Um, I saw in a documentary, uh, and we can link it to the show notes, it was on YouTube, that both Debbie Davis and Dr. Hellams had a connection at a local bookstore at the Clev- Cloverleaf Mall where Spencer hung out. Um, Debbie Debbie Davis worked at the bookstore and Dr. Hellams bought books there. Yeah, I actually saw that... The surveillance? Um, doc- Dr. Hellams... Uh, no, oh. Dr. Hellams had written a check. Oh yes, yes, out yes. To uh, yeah, to the to the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too. Um. So on November twenty second in nineteen eighty seven, Diane Cho, a fifteen year old high school student, um, uh, was raped and killed. <laughs> Diane was Korean. Um, she was an immigrant kid. She was a good kid. Um, by the way, I have mentioned that, um, being a person of color is one thing and then being an immigrant or a child of an immigrant is also is extra challenging. So, um, I think I, um, uh, saw in the documentary that like she was the one person in her family who spoke the best English. So she had to do a lot of translating, um, and for her family. Um, and, uh, she was kind of the the mom of the yeah, family. Yeah, and she worked. She they was a, doing things that a mom would do. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Registering her brother for school mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Her brother, I think, said that she wanted to be a doctor when she grew up. Um, but she was, other than that, a really a normal teenager. She would rebel occasionally. She had a she had a boyfriend that her parents didn't know about, and she would smoke cigarettes, you know, now and then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she she told a friend, um, her her I think it was her best friend Jenny that she was um, being followed, and um, it was Spencer. And then next thing you know, Spencer was in her bedroom. 
she told her friend that she she felt like she was being followed, but she didn't want to tell her parents because her parents were very strict, mm-hmm. uh, being Korean, and they were very traditional Koreans. Mm-hmm. Um, she she was afraid that if she told them about it, that uh, they wouldn't let her uh, go out. So she didn't want to tell them so, about it. Um... Uh, Spencer got into, uh, Diane Cho's bedroom and she was strang. He strangled her and he tied her up. Um, investigators were shocked by Spencer's audacity because, um, she was raped and strangled in her bedroom. Um, he entered through a window and he never made a noise to wake her parents or her brother who were in the bedrooms next door, next to her. Spencer left a single hair in Diane Cho's uh, bedsheet and investigators who previously believed that the killer was white realized that the hair left behind was um, Negroid hair. And I don't think that that term is still um, PC, <laughs> but anyway, that's. Yeah. You know, they, they, there's like three different types. There's Caucasian, there's Negroid and there's Mongoloid. And I think that's really Oh my God. Awful too. Stop it, you yeah. guys. Come on. I know. <laughs> White people should not be allowed to name hairs. No. Oh my God. Mongoloid? Okay, I can't. Mongoloid, yeah. I can't. I, that's it. I'm leaving. Goodbye. I can't even. I like that. You're talking to my ghost because I. This is ridiculous. Uh, so, <laughs> Jesus. Okay, let's all do better. Okay, let's all do better and be better. Um, so Diane Cho lived less than a mile from the Cloverleaf Mall, and uh, she spent a lot of time there. So, and on uh, December first, nineteen eighty-seven, Susan Tucker, who was forty-four years old, was murdered. Uh, Susan was a technical writer for the U.S. Forest Service. She was married, but her husband was out of town at the time. Actually, he was out of the country. He was in Wales on a business trip and also to visit his family. Uh, They were planning on moving there. Uh, So uh, Susan spent the Thanksgiving holiday at home. And... uh, so I said December 1st, 1987, she wasn't murdered on that date. That's the date she was found. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, her husband had been trying to call her for several days, but had been getting no answer. But he was in Wales. Mm-hmm. There was nothing he could do about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was kind of freaking out. Uh, and neighbors had noticed that a window in her house had been wide open for days. It was cold and they thought it was unusual, so they checked on her. The front door was unlocked, but they opened it and it was chained. So they uh, went to the back door, which was also unlocked. But when they opened the door, they knew that something was wrong because there was a smell of decay. So they notified police. They didn't go I'm thinking that this is the husband who was interviewed um, by the... Yes. Uh, Sir Tucker, yeah. Southern Nightmare, yeah. Um, yep. And uh, chilling, so listen. <laughs> the house had been ransacked, and it appeared that the intruder had spent some time in the house. Susan was found nude on the bed with her hands tied behind her back, with the rope tied from her hands to around her neck. 
She was murdered in Arlington, Virginia on or about November 27th, 1987. So um, she had been dead for several days before she was found. The scene was described as horrific. And because the corpse had been left there for several days, had a terrible smell. There was an unusual amount of semen left at the scene. It is believed that he was masturbating as he was killing Susan Tucker. The killer had entered the home by breaking a basement window and then broken glass was collected as evidence. They also found some some hairs. However, no fingerprints and no shoe prints. Police believe that the perpetrator wore gloves and that he cleaned the area around the basement window to get rid of a shoe print um, for as evidence. Um, interesting side note is Susan's husband took half of her ashes to Arizona near Sedona, where they lived for a time, and um, her uh, also took the other half to her family in South America. And I have to add, I think that this was the house that the killer like had a snack after everything like there was an or- yeah orange. yeah i think so too yeah. he uh ate an orange yeah or they, they think that he ate an orange there was like uh, an orange cut in half mm-hmm. and it was cut like right on the table and all of susan's friends were like she would never do that mm-hmm. she would not just cut an orange on the table yeah she was very uh, she would meticulous. Use a cutting board, <laughs> right? So. And then she wouldn't just leave it there. She would have thrown it away. So mm-hmm. they found this orange. So they they think he like hung out in the house yeah, for a while. That's, that's yeah. That's kind of what I gathered, and uh, that's what I believe. Yeah. So uh, Detective Joe Horgus was assigned to the case. He noticed distinct similarities between the Tucker murder and the Ham murder in 1984. Uh, These were the two murders in Arlington. However, uh, David Vasquez, if you remember, had already been convicted in the Ham case. Vasquez was a janitor with a low IQ who had confessed to the murder. And I suspect the confession was coerced. After all, this was Virginia in the 80s. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Detective Horgus uh, went to interview Vasquez. And after speaking with him, he felt that Vasquez actually knew nothing about the crime he had been convicted of. And that an innocent man was in jail. Have you ever been to Virginia? Probably, but I don't remember. <laughs> well, I haven't either. But I, I, um, Virginia was in the news because they elected somebody who, um, is super liberal recently. Maybe it was a trans person or something. Oh. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, I remember something it, about mean, that. Yeah. It, it might have been at the end of 20, earlier, way earlier this year, earlier 2018. But, uh, there was an interesting, um, comment made about Virginia, how it was the, this is, Virginia is where our democracy began. And at times it can be super antiquated, super ass backwards, but it is also uh, at the same time can be at the forefront of um, innovation and democracy. So um, Hmm. a lot of new, new and old ideas in Virginia. And so. um, Interesting. uh, yeah, so I just I just had to say that. Um, I'll shut up now. 
<laughs> okay. Oh, wait. No, it's my turn. Wait. Is it? It's your turn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, Horgus uh, was uh, convinced that not only was Vasquez innocent, but that the same man who had killed Ham also killed Tucker. Then he came across a teletype alert from Richmond. The alert detailed two recent murders on Richmond's affluent South Side, Debbie Davis and Susan Helms. Is it Helms or Helms? I don't. Helms, I, I think. Helms, okay. Both women had been raped, strangled with nooses, and left with their hands bound. There were no fingerprints and no witnesses. Horgus believed that all of the murders and the rapes ascribed to the uh, masked rapist were the work of what the press in Richmond were calling the Southside Strangler. Horgus called a detective Glenn Williams of the Richmond police and Williams described a third murder that had occurred on November 21st, just over the Richmond city line. The murder of high school student, Diane Cho. Horgus asked Williams if anything else was happening in Richmond and Williams mentioned a recent attack in the same neighborhood where, where Davis and Helms had lived. A black man wearing a mask had entered a woman's apartment through a window and was tying her up when her neighbors heard noises and came to investigate. The man fled and had not been caught. Horgus told Williams about the Arlington murders, but Williams was skeptical of any connection. Arlington was too far away, he said. And according to psychological profiles prepared by FBI experts, Serial killers were almost always white. Oh, that's right. Uh, because, because why? <laughs> because why? <laughs> oh, boy. Serial killers are always white. Come on, guys. So the Richmond, Virginia community realized that they had a serial killer on the loose. Locks were sold out at hardware stores. Women were even told to nail their windows shut. The killer was dubbed the South Side Strangler. Horgus decided to tap the FBI behavioral unit for help. A profile was done and the FBI agreed with Horgus that the masked rapist uh, was the same perp who committed the murders. The profile indicated that the perp was 18 to 30 years old, quiet and a loner, that he probably held a menial job and had a troubled relationship with his mother. They surmised that he may have started with arson. They said he was a sadistic killer who enjoyed making his victims suffer. And the fact that he attacked his victims in their homes suggested that he stalked them first so he would know when to attack. But the most useful suggestion to Horgus was that they thought that the perp probably lived close to where he committed his first rape. They said that often the first crime will be near where the perpetrator lives because the perp is comfortable with the area and knows all of the places where he can commit the crime unseen and he would know when the police are in the area, etc. So Horgus concentrated on the first rape where a woman had been taken from a phone booth in one area and then assaulted in another. 
a wooded lot in Green the Valley. The FBI also told him that the break in the crimes from 1984 to 1987 was another clue. So Detective Horgus was looking for a man who lived or worked in Green Valley and who was also or who had also been imprisoned between 1984 to 1987. He started combing through records of parolees to find someone who matched that information. But after going through records for days, he remembered a Green Valley juvenile who he had run-ins with, a young kid with a string of burglary convictions and arson. He remembered him as Timmy. I just think that's funny. Timmy. <laughs> but he, he could not recall his last name. However, after sitting on it for a while, he finally remembered Timmy Spencer. Spencer had been imprisoned from 1984 to 1987. He had been released to a halfway house in Richmond, so he had ties to both Arlington and Richmond. All of the later crimes were committed when Spencer was signed out of the halfway house. Spencer's mother lived less than a mile from the two murder sites in Arlington and only 200 yards from the spot on Oxford Street where the first rape had been committed. Richmond police surveilled Spencer for two weeks, but called it off because he did nothing suspicious, although he was observed going to the Cloverleaf Mall and just sitting there watching people, and he would sometimes follow women. If you recall, all three of the Richmond victims had connections to the Cloverleaf Mall. I am Mall. frustrated that uh, it's... Didn't he have a job? Like... He did, um, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> that is not something that I could find. Um uh, that, that Southern Nightmare mentioned that he did have a job, but uh, didn't say what it was. Well, we are going to be wrapping this up. So finally, a few days after the Richmond police stopped watching Spencer, Horgus presented evidence to a grand jury in Arlington. He and the prosecutor involved, Helly Fahey, I could be saying Helen, sorry. Hel- oh, Helen, Helen Fahey were afraid that Spencer would strike again when he wasn't being surveilled. And according to the, um, according to Fahey, an arrest warrant could be challenged later in court for lack of probable cause. But grand jury indictments are harder to challenge. The grand jury came back with an indictment and Horgus drove to Richmond, where on January 20th at 5.50 p.m., he arrested Spencer at his halfway house on suspicion of burglary. Based on an FBI suggestion, the detective didn't mention the murders or the rapes to Spencer. He hoped to use the drive back to Arlington to get Spencer to talk. With no hard evidence, remember all they had was some hairs... Some negroid some glass, hairs. but yeah, yeah, negroid hairs <laughs> <laughs> and some glass, but um, they didn't even have anything to to compare it with at that time when when he was arrested. They had nothing. Uh, so with no hard evidence, he knew there was only two ways to prove the case: get Spencer to confess or get him to volunteer a blood sample. Which I didn't know. I think now they can. Um, take blood samples without their consent. Uh, I think but, if you're under arrest, they can. I don't yeah, know. but it, we should find, we should find that out. He That's was, he opinion. was under arrest, um, but this was a different time. So yeah. um, apparently at that time he would have to agree to it. 
but I think now they can get uh, some kind of a warrant and uh, get their blood sample. Mm, yes, that sounds right. I think I heard that on Nancy Grace. By the way, do you watch Nancy I, I Grace? I think I heard it on, uh, <laughs> no, I hate Nancy Grace. I hate that bitch. <laughs> oh, my God. She she's just another one I want to punch like in the face. She's smelling shit. Oh, she, she's such a nasty ass bitch. She is. <laughs> she is really so. I she's I so could go mean. on for days. I could go on for days. Yeah. So um, I hate that bitch. Maybe we um, could do. Maybe for some bonus content, we could talk about how uh, how we feel about Nancy Grace. <laughs> Nancy Grace. <laughs> um. So he okay. So Spencer didn't say much during the drive. Even after Horgus tried to draw him out with news of his old neighborhood in Arlington. And he also remained um, pretty tight lipped during the interrogation that followed. The detectives were surprised because he had, he was polite. He smoked well. And all I had to say about the detective who said that on camera was dude, (laughs) your racism is showing. You can't, you shouldn't say that about black people who talk like you. (laughs) Anyway. Although, uh, I have to say that in the documentary, I saw the detective who said this, who was, it wasn't Horgus. It was a different detective. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I took it like, um, he said it, he said that, uh, Spencer was articulate and polite. So he actually questioned whether or not they had the right guy. It wasn't that he was surprised that a black guy could, uh, speak so articulately he was like is this do we have the right guy because okay. he said he found okay. himself thinking that uh this guy didn't seem like a murderer and then he would remember the evidence they that they had which is uh kind of a similar dichotomy with ted bundy where people are like but he's so nice you know yeah he seems so polite he seems so nice okay whenever whenever i just hear a white person say that black person or person of color over there is so articulate i assume they're very articulate (laughs) (laughs) and and uh sometimes they are sometimes they are (laughs) this that's how that's how i read it when he was talking when you say it like that, I okay, down dog. I get it. All right. <laughs> uh, so by 2 a.m., Horgus uh, was ready to quit. He asked Spencer one last time to submit to a blood test, saying it was needed to compare some blood found on a broken window in a burglary case. To his surprise, Spencer agreed. Horgus was so surprised that he began to wonder if Spencer was actually innocent. However, it is likely that because DNA evidence was so new, Spencer didn't realize that a blood test could be used to match a semen sample. Gotcha, bitch. (laughs) While Spencer remained in jail, Horgus boarded a plane to New York carrying Spencer's blood sample to Life Codes. Uh, DNA lab, which uh, at this time, there were no state DNA labs. This was like one of the only DNA labs. And uh, I think the Richmond uh, police had already sent their samples over. So he brought uh, Spencer's blood sample to that DNA lab. And he was told that the results would take at least six to ten weeks. Get the fuck out of (laughs) here. Yeah. <laughs> then he proceeded to call Lisa Bennett, 
the technician in charge nearly every single day. Way to go, Horgus. 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 Horgus and and DNA are the heroes (laughs) of this story. Um, Police also collected blood and hair evidence and searched his room in the halfway house where they took his clothes, including a jacket. They brushed the clothes and found glass fragments from the jacket, which uh, they compared to the glass from the Tucker crime scene using um, glass refraction analysis. This is where, in layman's terms, okay, so now I'll be able to understand, they measure how (laughs) glass bends light. The glass from his jacket was found to have the same optical characteristics as the glass from the Tucker crime scene. But it was a pretty common glass. Not that unusual. So this evidence was not really that helpful. Yeah, and the hair also was not that helpful. Don't forget about the Negroid hair. Oh, but it wasn't. The Negroid hair. (laughs) The Negroid hair. I mean, they knew it was a black man, but it was was consistent with a a Negroid. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, my God. All right. Okay. Moving Um, on. (laughs) On March 16th, Lisa Bennett from Life Codes called with the findings. Spencer's DNA matched DNA left at the murders of Susan Tucker, Debbie Davis, and Susan Helms, as well as one of the Arlington rapes that had occurred four years earlier. They did it! (laughs) Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. The trial. Oh, I'm Wendy. Yes, you're Wendy. I'm Wendy. <laughs> That's <Okay>. you. <laughs> That's me. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Helen Fahey, the prosecutor in the case, was very nervous about going to trial based on DNA evidence and almost nothing else. Isn't that funny? Because now that's all we need, right? Yeah, that's Amy the, yeah. Was brand new technology at the time. And she felt that it was asking a lot of a jury to believe this new technology was good enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt in a capital murder case. 
The science was so new that the judge in the case, Benjamin Kendrick, had to hold a special hearing prior to Spencer's court date to determine whether DNA evidence was legally admissible. It was very controversial at the time. Yep. At any time they introduce new uh, technology like that, it's always controversial at the beginning. Um, A lot of people thought of it like junk science. Uh, But Judge Kendrick made the decision that it was reliable and it was going to be. Shout out to Judge Kendrick. Because, by the way, (laughs) there are a lot of trash ass judges in the United States. Oh, yeah. I am (laughs) glad for Judge Kendrick. Spencer was put on trial for Susan Tucker's murder on September 22nd, 1988. According to one courtroom observer, Spencer would sit quietly until crime scene photos were shown and at which point he would he would come to life like i i saw that that he really wanted to yeah. um, see like he see really wanted pictures. to see the pictures like he like like salivating over him almost like very excited when yeah. when the pictures would be shown kind of like yeah. yeah like when you're when your 5-year-old paints a really good picture and they like are excited for you to see it that's how he was yep yep <laughs> yeah <laughs> After six hours of deliberation, a Richmond jury found Spencer guilty of rape, burglary, and capital murder. The jury unanimously fixed Spencer's punishment at death, which was affirmed on direct appeal. Um, It was the electric chair that he got, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. In 1988 and... 1989, Spencer was tried and convicted of the murders of Davis and Helms in Richmond and uh, Cho in nearby Chesterfield. He was sentenced to death in each case. During the the trial, Cho's mother took the stand with the help of a translator because she didn't speak English. She spoke only Korean. And um, she was really affected by the sight of Spencer. And uh, she was, they, they were very religious. So she asked to say a prayer prior to her testimony and then after she testified she just like lost it and lunged at spencer and then i think <laughs> the power went out in the courthouse yeah yeah, yeah and, the, the during the trial the power went out and uh it was dark and people were like freaking out yeah yeah it's it's this is wild i don't know why there's pretty not a movie about this. yeah yeah <laughs> Although the DNA from Carol Ham's murder was too degraded to use, it had sat in storage for too long. Horgus pushed for the exoneration of the man previously convicted of her murder, David Vasquez, the Latinx go, man. Horgus. To to make a case for Vasquez, the prosecutor, Helen Fahey formally requested the help of the FBI, including Special Agent John Douglas. John Douglas, uh, where's the hip hop air horn? <laughs> oh, John Douglas! John Douglas, who had founded the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in the early 1980s. When Douglas agreed to help Fahey, it was the first time FBI profilers had ever been asked to help prove a suspect. Come on, innocent. guys, this is groundbreaking! <laughs> Why isn't there a movie? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I got involved because one of the things that evolved at that time was linking cases together. Douglas explains, what you look for is a signature. 
A signature is a ritual. In the Spencer case, Douglas believed that uh, the unusual cord bindings constituted a unique signature in all five murders. Citing this and other factors, FBI agent Stephen Mardigan drafted a 35-page report along with a letter, which Douglas also signed, asking for Vasquez's pardon. Fahey sent it along with her own pardon petition to the Virginia Governor Gerald Belilis. I don't know. I'm going to say Gerald Belilis. In October 1988 and on January 4th, 1989, Vasquez was released from prison. The first person in the U.S. to be exonerated, albeit indirectly by DNA evidence. (laughs) That's good news. All right. So where are they now? Spencer was executed on uh, April 27th, 1994, by electric chair. He was the first person to be executed based on DNA evidence and the last person in Virginia to be executed by the electric chair. The last person? The last person. Oh. Uh, not to be executed, but to be executed by electric okay. chair. After that, they went to lethal hey, injection. Maybe I shouldn't ask you this. What do you think about uh, the death penalty? I am uh, anti death penalty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I am so for it, but only if they have the um, right person. Well, because... that's the problem. Oh. So, okay. So, that's in my mind, the problem. World, in... Yeah, it's not a perfect world. Yeah. There's, so it, as you know, there's so many people who get convicted and, um, the majority of them are people of color who uh-huh. get convicted uh, erroneously. And oh boy, this is a hot take. Um, hot take alert here. <laughs> <laughs> I I just don't. I I think you cannot have a death penalty uh, in, until, until system, you can right? perfect that, and I don't think it can ever be perfected. So I don't, I'm, I'm very anti death penalty. Um, Also one more, one more thing is that um, rotting in jail, I think is, is worse than, than getting the death penalty. So as long as the person is uh, in jail for life, that there's no possibility of parole, then I'm fine with it. They're out of society they're not hurting us. So uh, I think that we should abolish prisons. I don't think that they work. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think. So what? What? What do you do with with uh, all the criminals then? Oh, okay. So uh, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, no, I don't, I don't. But I, I don't think that we can continue to keep like building like these private prisons that are run by these oh yeah i don't i don't think that we should have private prisons i think those are terrible yeah yeah i agree i agree the prison system should not be a money-making venture it's not not. that's just a bad idea we should take notes from other countries uh who are yes definitely what works right. what works for yes. other countries yeah yeah and, and i think uh especially for uh, this is a really uh complex su- subject uh 
Oh, for but, sure. Um, oh, for sure. For uh, people and like no young people. Writer. Yeah, that's true. Young people and uh, for uh, people who uh, do not commit violent crimes, I think the emphasis should definitely be on rehabilitation and not in the way that they're doing it now, which is just terrible. Did you Mm -hmm. read um, Orange is the New Black, the book? I did not, but if I can find an audio version of the book, then I Yeah, you should definitely, you should definitely listen to that because it talks a lot about uh, the problems with the prison system and Mm -hmm. it it really made me want to get involved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Oh, that's uh, cool. Help. There's a lot of, a lot of these people like uh, in our last case, uh, growing up in families that are dysfunctional and they're Mm -hmm. using drugs and they, they just grow up in this terrible environment. They don't know any different and Mm -hmm. they end up in jail because they're doing drugs or whatever. And the, the prison system actually makes their life worse. Yeah. And yeah, that's not what they need. And their family's life worse. Yeah. And it's not what they need and it's not helping anything. It's not Mm -hmm. helping society. It's not helping them. It's not helping their families. So, I mean, I think an overhaul is definitely in order. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you remember that scene in um, Orange is the New Black where the where the girl was there was a girl who was delivering a baby and they had her chained to a bed? And yeah, I mean, it's horrible. It's on on TV, but that happens every fucking day. So, yeah, we've got it wrong and we need to try to do it right. So. That's yeah. what that's where I'm coming from with yep. abolishing prisons and getting rid of I, police. I anyway, agree. another hot take. Yeah. <laughs> hot take. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> so where the where the hell oh he was executed. Yeah. Okay. So we're at the end. What made him oh, yeah. snap? Oh yes. What made him snap? Well, um, from what I gather, he was a controlling individual. Like I remember that um snippet from his brother on the YouTube documentary where he he tried to his little brother tried to do something bad just like him and and he was like no no bro don't be like me so he was controlling um he clearly had some anger towards women um spencer had a pattern of escalation he would break into homes then he would defecate in the homes then he would steal things i don't even understand just i am going to poop in your house well yeah it it was like it's it's an expression of dominance you know i'm gonna break into your house and then i'm gonna crap on it you know i'm literally gonna shit on all your stuff yes Um, i am gonna shit on your stuff yeah so it's (laughs) he's he's violating their boundaries and he is expressing his dominance okay so um well then i'm gonna try i'm gonna try that tomorrow anyway (laughs) <laughs> go to work and i don't and know crap my, my on my kids, boss's my desk kids do it all the time so i, and if I I'm, I, yeah it's it. very childish when you think about it you know it is a very yeah. childish Literally, thing to do my daughter pooped in the backyard yeah. the other day because she thought it was yeah. all right so uh yeah and, and it wasn't and, so but she's three so <laughs> 
yeah, so she's not she's not an earthy like Mr. Spencer. So he would steal no. things and then he would start he so this is how the escalation happened. He would trespass against people's things and then eventually against people, and that led to rape and murder. And I also think um some narcissistic personality disorder might be at play here. Um he was very handsome and fit and he had those hazel eyes. There's a famous rapper, um, his name's Eric Sermon, and they call him the, the green-eyed bandit because his eyes are so beautiful. So pretty. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think people who are attractive tend to have these, like, expectations about how people should respond to them. And, um... Uh, yeah, they're since- used to people people responding to them in a certain way, and when they don't, right. they, uh, they get angry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, the true crime OG, would know way more about this whole narcissistic <laughs> bullshit than I would. But I just know that all of the attractive people I know are not always very nice. So uh, since he was a narcissist, it makes sense that he would prey and torture on women for his own ego gratification. So, And going back to uh, antisocial personality disorder, which we talked about yes. last week. Uh-huh. Uh, pretty darn sure this guy had it. I think so. Uh, he, yeah. Uh, on the, the far, far end. <laughs> <laughs> he had a history of criminal behavior starting at a young age, a lack of empathy, and he was a sexual sadist. A psychologist on one of the documentaries I watched labeled him as a predatory psychopath and said Ooh. that there may be a genetic component uh, that he may have been hard hardwired that way, and I've I've heard this before that there's a genetic component, and and there's some controversy over uh, what they call it a psychopath a psychopath gene. Oh, so, uh, yeah, I'm reading up on that. Oh, uh, let me know what you it's, find. It's it's controversial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Dr. Michael Stone, who's a forensic psychiatrist, suggested that some serial killers may have deficits in the amygdala or prefrontal cortex of the brain from birth, or uh, as we discussed last week, uh, they may have suffered a brain injury. And looking at Spencer's early life, it doesn't seem to me like he had a bad childhood, no. Um, it, at least according to his brother, they had a, a pretty good childhood. Um, so yeah. I don't know where the anger towards women came from, unless it was anger towards his mother as being the head of the household and that she had the control in the house. And maybe he resented that. Uh, but there could be other factors that we don't know about, like maybe his brother wasn't completely honest about what went on in the house. But yeah. it could just be that it could be genetic. I don't know. Yeah, it could. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. I think um, what's troubling, you know, we 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 love true crime, and um, one of the reasons why I love it is because so I know I, I'm informed about. Who could be really crazy? What terrible things could happen? What should I do to be safe? And right. this is um, particularly scary because we have no idea why he did what he did or what made him snap. I mean, something yeah, could he even didn't talk to him. about it. Yeah, when he was Nothing. in prison, yeah. I mean, he could yeah. have got fucked up in prison. You know, I 
I don't know. I don't know. He could have gotten... Yeah. I, it's, it really is a mystery, and, and that is what is so terrifying. Yeah. Um, but let's get into our takeaways, Beth. So uh, what did this episode mean to you? I'll start. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think that, I think that DNA is fucking awesome, and I'm going to get my next <laughs> tattoo is going to be DNA. My next child is DNA. <laughs> Williams, um, because DNA is so amazing. Um, this is the first case where DNA evidence was used to confirm and convict a murderer ever at the time Spencer's death in the U.S. or in the U.S. Okay, sorry, right. Spencer's defense attorneys <laughs> the position that uh, this d- DNA is it's all we have. Oh my god, it's just DNA. Like they were mi- they. <laughs> They had a really minimalist approach to DNA. Like they didn't realize how fucking dope DNA is and how accurate it is. And um, they didn't think it was trustworthy. And at the time it was so new that they hoped that the jury wouldn't buy it or um, wouldn't find it valid. But I I think I saw in that documentary that we have shouted out numerous times throughout the show that his own defense attorneys sent the DNA evidence to a, another lab and it came a back private and it lab. Identif- yeah. yeah. And it identified Spencer. And they're like, Oh, maybe oh, the DNA stuff is real. <laughs> so, yeah. And I remember one of the, one of the lawyers said that he wore like hot pink socks in court. Oh yeah. To distract the jury. <laughs> to distract the jury while they were giving the evidence. <laughs> they were doing whatever they could yeah yeah. whatever you can to get your you know to get your client off i'm i'm assuming he had a public defender but i don't know so yeah i don't know either uh but dna doesn't lie dna is my hero and i will ride or die for dna every fucking day of the week okay bitch Yeah, so I was I was really interested in the forensics in this case. Not only the DNA, which was really interesting, but also the glass and the hair, which I didn't really know oh, that yeah. much about. So oh, the glass and so the that was pretty yeah, interesting. Was- yeah, yeah. Um, I was also really impressed by the investigation by Detective Horgus, although Susan Tucker's husband uh, remembers him as kind of an asshole who suspected him. But Horgus denies that he ever suspected him. But Mm -hmm. in any case, he was the first to connect the murders to the masked rapist. And he realized that Vasquez uh, was not guilty. He took the time to interview Vasquez to talk to police in another jurisdiction, which, you know, they don't always do, and to consult with the FBI. He was Mm -hmm. also the one who connected Spencer because he remembered him. He had a dogged persistence. His fellow detectives described him as being aggressive and intense and difficult to work with. So that might be why uh, (laughs) Susan Tucker's husband thought he was an asshole. You either loved him or you hated him, is what I heard. Right, right. Nothing in between. (laughs) Nope. But he was the one who pushed for Vasquez's exoneration. Even though there was no DNA evidence left to exonerate him, uh, he didn't have to do that. He could have just forgot about it, but Mm -hmm. he pushed for it. He really worked for it. And as an aside, 
I read that Horgus uh, never would have found Spencer's name in the records of parolees that he was combing to find a suspect when, after he talked to the FBI and they said, you know, look for somebody who's, uh, who was jailed during this time. Uh, he never would have found him because convicts released to halfway houses at the time were not technically considered paroled. Uh, he found him because he remembered him somehow. The name just popped in his head. Timmy. In any case. <laughs> yeah, Timmy. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I don't know about you, Wendy. Out of all of the cases we've covered so far, I think Timothy Wilson Spencer is the worst. How come you say that? Um, well, going back to Michael Stone, the forensic psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier, Uh, He created a scale of evil, which is also featured on the TV show. Most evil. Have you ever seen that? I feel like I really need to. I think it's probably on the ID channel. Okay. Uh Um, He, you know, he talks about uh, different uh, people and, and where they fall on his, his scale of evil. Uh Um, So in my opinion, Spencer rates the highest, on uh, Stone's scale of evil at 22, that's the highest, uh, psychopathic torture murderer. According to Stone, more than 90% of serial killers are psychopaths and sadists, but Uh what drives them to kill varies from person to person. Some of them are loners and capable of sustained romantic relationships, and they'll rape women and then kill them to destroy the evidence. Like a one-night stand, but with murder at the end. <laughs> others, hey, others. Want to Netflix and chill and die? And die. <laughs> Netflix and oh, die. Netflix and die. <laughs> others uh, are seeking revenge, although the, the real source of their anger, uh, which is usually apparent, is pro- projected onto their victims so they're thinking about a, somebody else in their life uh, and they kill the the victim as a proxy right but right. as far as spencer is concerned what got him off and what motivated him was inflicting prolonged torture and he really loved it and yeah he, he would mess with these women for hours yeah and uh, he would strangle them until they they passed out and then bring them back and strangle them again um, because it made him feel in control. And he wanted that to go on for a long time. Yeah. And I just, it's so sick. It really disturbed me. And it, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I love true crime <laughs> and you do too. But yes. um what what uh some things really get me and are or get to me or and uh it's uh torture against children and just mm-hmm. prolonged torture against women and it just it's just a yeah i watched i watched a youtube video of a cyst being exploded and it was just like a so that's that's the feeling that's the feeling you get (laughs) like like i had to like get up and jump around and 
run around. That's that's the feeling that it gives me. Like, ah, oh, it's, yeah. it's just really uncomfortable. So it is. It is. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why I'm laughing. Oh, because I'm uncomfortable. That's why. <laughs> yeah, it's something women do. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. This is what Laugh I do when, when we're I... uncomfortable. <laughs> Nervous. Yeah, it's so it's so funny. Okay, it's okay. so funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny, but okay. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast Who Killed. I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) 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 This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So take it away, for Wendy. For example. <laughs> so um, Dr. Helms uh, was aware that there was a serial rap- rapist. And um, shortly before she died, um, remember, Dr. Helms was the neurosurgery resident. Before she died, every the whole town was like, this is fucking scary. And um, she, uh, one of her colleagues reported that they walked out of the hospital together shortly before she died. I think it was the day before um, together for safety, like the buddy system. And unfortunately, when she got home, Spencer was there waiting for her. And I'm thinking like, uh, is it a good idea? You got to we got to trust our intuition ladies. And if you notice anything out of place in your home, after you walk into the door, um, maybe you could, um, grab a neighbor, grab a friend. Um, do you have a dog, um, or a broom to to like arm yourself with? But, um, I don't think it, it sounded like, um, Ms. Helms, got into her home. Everything must have looked normal to her. And, um, she, she was about to turn in for the night. Right. And that's when he attacked and right. Me, I like to check the whole house before I relax. Um, I let in all the dogs. Everybody goes through the house. I I check I check everything. Um, is anything out of place? And that's just me because I'm a true crimer and I know that anybody could die at any time. And so um, I, that's my recommendation is check everything before you sit down and relax and watch your, um, or, or before you sit down and listen to this podcast uh, when you're at home. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. I, ne- I never really even thought about that, to be honest. 
Yeah. Um, and this is another case where uh, the perpetrator came in through windows. So again, it's uh-huh. a good idea to lock and check your windows and doors um, and uh, keep your inner doors locked too, like the door yes. to the basement or the garage. In uh-huh. a couple of the cases, he gained entry through a basement window. Um, what freaks me out the most is that he would hide in the house, like in For the closet, and wait. Yeah. yeah. That totally freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. So, like so you what- said, uh, scan the house when you come home, see if anything looks out of place, uh, look at the windows. Make sure uh, they're not broken or the screen's not cut or, you know, don't don't leave them open. So there's no question about the screen. <laughs> yeah. And this was also in the 80s. Right. So not a lot of people probably had security systems. Now we do. Right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yep. times are a little bit different. We are a little bit more evolved and uh, a little bit safer because of it. But. I just, I don't think you should relax until you know it's okay to relax. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, so uh, that's it for the, what's this guy's name? Timothy Wilson <laughs> Spencer. A.K.A. the Southside Strangler. Okie dokie. Uh, we've got mail. <laughs> uh, Yay! Yay! We had a listener in our discussion group on Facebook. And Val, thank you for the nice message. She said, um, great podcast, excellent tales, flow, and commentary. I love getting their perspective on the crimes and the criminals and how they relate to the bigger picture of culture prejudices, and racism. Yay! Thanks for the nice note, Val. Yes, thank you. And um, another listener in our group, um, Karen, says uh, that she now pays attention to these stories more since she started listening to the podcast. So that's great. All we want to do is spread the word because nobody knows about this stuff. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool, yeah. I think. Yeah, thank you. Karen and Val, we love you. <laughs> so, hey, Beth, where can they find us? Well, they can find us at our website, which is fruitloopspod.com. Mm. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. Also, links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash Yay! app, which is cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum, even a dollar would help. That's right. So um, thank you for sticking with us. Um, This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.